I think people generally tend to overstate or over worry about business risks that they're taking. Like most of the time people take a business risk of doing a startup, they probably have enough of a safety net, either savings or family or the ability to go get another job that this is not really that risky. And so people should take more of them. It'll probably be okay. You're listening to What Fuels You, where we deep dive with CEOs, entrepreneurs, and business leaders to learn more about their stories and uncover nuggets of wisdom we can all use. I'm your host, Shauna Swirland, CEO of Fuel Talent, an award-winning recruiting firm based in Seattle. Today's guest on the What Fuels You podcast is Spencer Raskoff. Spencer is an entrepreneur and tech executive who co-founded Zillow, Hotwire, .LA, Picasso, Recon Food, Q, and Hey Libby, who served as Zillow's CEO for a decade. Spencer is an active angel investor and is starting new companies through his Los Angeles venture capital firm and startup studio, 75 and Sunny. He is also on the board of directors of Vero Bank. In the spring of 2022, Spencer was a visiting professor where he taught Harvard College's first ever startup class, Startups from Ideation to Exit. In the fall of 2019, he co-created and co-taught the Harvard Business School course, Managing Tech Ventures. Spencer hosts Office Hours, a podcast featuring candid conversations between prominent executives on leadership, diversity and inclusion, and startups. Spencer graduated cum laude from Harvard University. Welcome, Spencer. Thank you so much for joining the podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Awesome. So you're in like the flip seat because I know you've got a couple podcasts yourself. So now you get to be in the hot seat, especially <laughs> with some rapid fire. Are you ready? Great. Let's go. Okay. What is the best way for you to stay in shape? I run a couple miles every day. That's so good. Oh my God. I hate running. Um, so I'm <laughs> I didn't say I didn't hate it, but you, 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 you hate you, it. You, I mean, I don't hate it, but uh, you know, I don't. I, I, I kind of hate it during, but I'm very happy yeah. after. What do you listen to? Uh, Spotify playlists usually. Oh, 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 I also just watch a lot of TV while I run. Oh, so you're running on like a treadmill. I'm running on a treadmill. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, I hate running okay, outside. Cute. Sorry, I'm always running on a treadmill. And, you know, Peloton now has an integration with Netflix and a couple other streaming services. So you can watch shows directly on the Peloton screen if you don't want to watch classes. So, I did not know that. Yeah. Maybe I will new. start running or walking on a hill. I like it. Um, okay. So I'm guessing this is the answer. What is the first thing that you do when you wake up? No, it's not run. It's uh, it's kiss my wife and Aww. then go downstairs to make breakfast for the kids. Oh, good. And I get love the that. kids out for the bus and then I exercise. Yeah. And what is, this is going to be a tough, like asking which one's your favorite baby, your favorite child, but which house or home is your favorite Picasso home or location? Um, well, the one I've spent the most time at is definitely mine. I own one in Malibu. And so it's an eighth of a home on the beach in Malibu. It's a gorgeous setting. It's really small. It's two bedrooms. It's a tiny little house. And it's probably like 1200 square feet or something or 1500 square feet. It's a little beach house. And I use it as an office. I use it as a poker, uh, you know, poker getaway, um, and, uh, just a place to, a place to chill and escape and look at the ocean. So it's mine and I love I it. Love and I own one eighth of it. Yeah, and one eight. So it's forty five days. Is that? Uh, right? It's like it's like yeah, it's like six weeks a year. Yeah, I've definitely looked into it. Like my problem with Picasso <laughs> is that I can't decide. I'm like, I want like six of them. They're so well, you can cool. get six. <laughs> a lot, a lot, of, a lot of people have two or three. Uh, and, They're the uh, coolest. Yeah. 
Well, we do have a new a new product, Sean, also, which is a swapping product. So if you buy Picasso and then you become friends with someone like me and you we connect in the Picasso app, then you can see my schedule and I can see your schedule and you can request time in my Picasso. I can request time in yours and we swap. So that's a way to solve the, uh, okay. know, the, the fact that you're not sure what which one to buy. Well, that incentivizes me to get all my friends and we just go, you, get the, la- you get the lake house, I'll yes. get the ski house. I love that idea. That that would be working as designed in that case. Yes. Okay. If you could be a famous artist, musician, athlete, author, scientist, if you could be famous for something other than being Spencer Raskoff, killer investor and founder, Hmm. what would you choose? Um, Huh. I, well, I guess it's it's closely related to what era would I most like to have lived in? I, I, I would have liked to have lived sort of 1850 to 1920, 1930. So I guess I would have liked to have been an industrialist after the Civil War. So I guess I'd like to have been Teddy Roosevelt. So president is sort of at the dawn of industrialization. Wow. Okay. And that's next level. I've asked this of a lot of people and people are like, athlete, Michael Jordan. Yours is like, <laughs> no, is like not, okay, not this, really is the smarty, this is the smarty pants guy. Okay. <laughs> so what's the current book on your nightstand? Um, I'm reading a book called uh, The Innocence Abroad by Mark Twain, um, which is a super interesting book. Actually, it's from this era. It is about Mark Twain in 1870-ish, taking a boat uh, across the Atlantic and spending about six months in Europe and his observations as an American traveling through Europe in the uh, in, in the late 1800s. And it's funny wow. and interesting. And it's sort of like the reverse de Tocqueville. De Tocqueville was the Frenchman that visited the U.S. in the 1750s and 60s, and I believe, if I'm getting that correct, and wrote a lot of interesting observations about America from a European's perspective. And this is observations about Europe in the Middle East from an American. I wonder how things would be today. Europeans talking about Americans like ay ay ay. Um, okay, is there a quote that you reference often or that you live by? Luck is what happens when preparation meets opportunity. I like that one. Who said it again? I don't know. Um, I don't know either. I went to a tennis camp when I was a kid, and they had all these quotes all around the dorms. I just gravitated to that one. I thought that was amazing, and I stole it from my tennis camp. Uh, it's, the, what was the tennis camp? I was a ten. I played tennis in college, so I've been to was, all of the tennis. This was camps. John Gardner's tennis ranch in Carmel, California. Of course, uh, I know John Gardner. Uh, and it was in this on this like kind of white index card, and I, I you know, I, I, I surreptitiously put it in my bag, and and then it it hung in my. I love that one. Childhood. I was I'm writing it down because I totally remember that one. Love it. Okay, so if there was a movie written about your life, what would it be called? Hmm. Not done yet, uh, or not, or maybe not dead yet. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I guess, yeah. I mean, it's had several. It's had several chapters. Hopefully, it'll have several more. And so, I guess that would be a good title. No, yeah. Not, well, not I can't even imagine. It would be like the thickest. Like, <laughs> I don't even know what book War and Peace, because you've done so much already, and I'm kind of in awe. I don't. I really am truly in awe. Part of me wants to make the whole podcast just about like your hacks and your organizational skills and like time management. Cause I, I mean, three kids, so many businesses, investments, uh, you're a huge influencer and you find time to do stuff like this. So A, I'm grateful, Thank but you. I want to know, like, let's, let's go back to you 
um, like as a kid. I know you went to Harvard Westlake, but let's what what grade does that start in? Is that a K through twelve? Well, I, I I was born in New York. I, I I went to a school called Dalton in New York from okay. kindergarten through fifth grade, and then I moved to LA and I went to uh, one school for sixth grade, and then Harvard Westlake is seven through twelve. So I grew ah, up in, in New York and then LA. My parents moved from New York for lifestyle reasons. Basically, my dad was doing a lot of business in New York and in LA. He was in the music industry. And so we, we were able to live in either place. And my parents decided that LA would be a better place to live for weather and lifestyle. And lots oh, of yeah, it makes reasons. sense. Both yeah. cities are two of my favorites. I lived in New York for a long time, but I love LA. That totally makes sense. How would you describe your childhood? Are there like some pivotal memories, I guess, that contributed to who we're meeting today, like specifically your entrepreneurial spirit? Yeah. Uh, well, formative, a very formative experience was my chess career as a little kid. So I played competitive chess when I lived in New York, like a lot. I was co-captain of, of our middle school team, which won the national championship. I was ranked number four of kids in the country under the age of 12. Wow. Um, and I played, you know, I played a lot of chess competitively and, um, and it was a really important experience for me. It taught me the ability. It taught me about how to concentrate, how to win, how to lose, how to focus, how to prepare. Uh, the importance of hard work. Uh, and actually, it's surprisingly chess is a bit of a team sport as well, at least in, in grade school. And so it was it was formative in terms of the the teamwork involved in preparation on the team. It's very like trendy right now. I mean, I know it, it's always <laughs> COVID, kind of a thing, COVID, but like COVID all kind of, of new, the kids yeah. are playing chess. Good, it's good. It's really good for the mind. It is. It is. So my kids also played a lot of competitive chess and lots of tournaments, and it was very important to their mental, academic, and athletic, if you want to call it that, development. Yeah. So I, I wouldn't trade that for anything, and I highly recommend it, especially for girls. I think it's great for boys as well, but um, I, I saw my oldest girl really benefited a lot from chess. I think in particular, it's valuable for girls because it, it teaches them that if you're playing a game, an intellectual game with fixed rules, and it, you can win regardless of your height, age, gender, race, sexuality, whatever, it doesn't matter. You know, a little seven-year-old girl can be playing some giant 14-year-old boy and win. And I, I just think that's really important. I never thought about it like that, but that's so true. And it's so important in those at that age. In sports, there are, I mean, obviously hard work is incredibly important in sports, but there are just some physical limitations sometimes in sports around somebody's size, which does matter in a lot of kids sports and adult sports. And, um, and there's also a lot of subjectivity in sports where, uh, you know, the, it, did you get called for that foul? Did the ref totally. see this, you know, et cetera, but there's no subjectivity in chess and uh, there's no allowance given to somebody's size. It's just based on your intellect and effort. Yeah. I love that. I never really thought about it like that. And um, tell me about some of the role models. I read about Mr. Jovanovic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, my chess coach was, was Svetozor Jovanovic, uh, a, a guy, a chess coach from Yugoslavia and was exactly what you would imagine a chess coach from Yugoslavia in the 80s would have been like and um, you know he had a thick eastern European accent and he ran a tight ship and he taught us discipline and chess and a lot more uh, so he was an important role model I had a lot of incredible teachers as a kid uh, yeah. at, at Harvard Westlake and beyond I've, I've written a bit about Miss Newmeyer, who was my journalism teacher at Harvard Westlake I was editor editor-in-chief of the high school paper and that was another very important activity as I got a little bit older in school and 
newspaper is such a great activity in high school, primarily because you learn how to manage and motivate your peers. Right. So, it, you know, it it's really the only or it's one of the very few extracurriculars in school in grade school or in high school where you're actually somebody's boss. You're managing them. Right. In, in teams, everyone's sort of a peer. In most extracurriculars, everyone's sort of a peer. But in newspaper, as an 11th grader, you're telling a 10th grader what articles to write and then you're editing them the way a teacher would edit your paper. And um, in 12th grade, it becomes even more so where you're really managing a business, a small business. Yeah. And figuring out how to manage your peers um, or in some cases how to manage people older than you is really important. It's a skill that then I took to my first startup, Hotwire, which I started when I was 23. And I had to figure out how to manage people that were in their 40s and 50s, which, at the t- of course, now I'm in my late 40s. And at the time when I was 23, the idea of working with someone or managing someone, having a direct report as old as late 40s seemed kind of insane to me. But, um, you know, now I'm that age. But learning how to motivate those folks and and how to get the best work out of them, even though they're more experienced than you, was something that I, one of the many skills that I learned on newspaper, in addition to time management and hard work and grammar and attention to detail and teamwork and many other yeah. skills. Would you say when you were younger, it was more like um, love to win or hate to lose? And how has that changed over time? I love to win. I, I don't think I've ever hated to lose um i mean if you hate to lose you don't take risks right. you you know and um so yeah definitely love to win although i i you know I'll t- we'll tell a quick story like hotwire was very uh, the culture hotwire which i helped drive because uh, you know as a as a young leader there was very competitive with priceline who was the leader in discount travel and hotwire was the challenger and all of our company meetings were about rallying to defeat Priceline. And we had posters of William Shatner, who was the spokesperson of Priceline. People would throw darts at his face and stuff like that. Um, <laughs> and um, and Zillow, we had a very different culture. It was not competitive with competitors. It was very focused on delighting our users and just trying to innovate to satisfy and, and help our users achieve their goals. And I can tell you those two different cultures are very different. And the Zillow one was much more inspirational and more um, people could just get behind it much more. H- having a having a very competitive culture against another business competitor or team rival is it's like a short term burst of adrenaline, but then it's a low low because you lose the forest for the trees of trying to actually innovate or delight people instead you're just always chasing someone else's taillights um so the answer is definitely a drive to win not a drive not to lose yeah that's an, that's incredible insight and i definitely am excited to learn about hotwire because i mean obviously everyone knows hotwire you started it when you were so young um but went to harvard before that got into investment banking and some private equity um, how did you choose Harvard? I mean, obviously that's like the school if you can get in, but what was driving your choices? You know, you're going back East. Yeah. Uh, it's a good question. Um, and I will give you credit, Sean. I've done a lot of podcasts. No one's ever asked me that question. Okay. <laughs> so we're in new territory. So, uh, it's a complicated and a little bit of a sad story, but, uh, when I was in 10th grade and my older brother was in 12th grade, he died in a car accident two days before his high school graduation. And he was going to Princeton. 
And um, by the way, then six months later, after mourning, my parents decided to have two more kids. So I have a brother and sister who are 17 years younger than I am um, that were kind of born out of having lost my brother. So when it came time to, for me to apply to college, I applied early to Princeton because I guess I wanted to follow in my late brother's footsteps. I got in early to Princeton. And then um, back then you could still apply to other schools. And I got into Harvard regular admissions. And so it was really down to the wire between those two. And ultimately I decided I wanted to chart my own path and and not follow in my brother's footsteps. So Harvard was great for me. It was a terrific experience. I you know met amazing people, learned a lot, grew a lot as a student and as a person. Although frankly, I probably grew more in my high school experience than in my college experience. And you know, those those prior four years of high school were even more formative than my four years of college, I think. But the most important thing that happened to me in college, of course, was I met my wife, uh, who we started dating freshman week when we were 17. And um, oh, my gosh, we just celebrated 30 years together, 20 years married. So that's the the, the best that's thing I, I got incredible. out of college. Now that I'm a mom and I've got a college age student and I've got, you know, we've we talked about this. Our kids are about the same age. You know, would you, obviously you're, you're one of the lucky ones that's happily married. And I can just tell the way that you're smiling right now. And the way that you said, you're going to kiss her first thing when you wake up, like, but that's young. How did you know? <laughs> it is young. And now I have, a I mean, 17, now, we, like yeah. you're looking at your kids and being like, nope, that's not going to yeah. happen. Well, we, and we have a freshman daughter now in, in college. And so that, you know, we talk about that a lot that, oh my gosh, maybe she's already met her husband. That's weird. And, you know, and right. when, and is she even old enough to make those types of decisions? Totally. Um, yeah. I mean, uh, you know, we started dating early, but we also took our time, right? We dated for 10 years <laughs> before deciding to get married. Oh, so, got it. So that makes I, sense. I feel like there was a, a pretty good, uh, you know, the, the vetting good waiting process. period. Yeah. Good vetting process that gave us both time yeah. to, to consider. Yeah. And um, I know that you went backpacking through Europe. I saw a very cute picture on Facebook and I was like, wait, what? Is that him? You're wearing your tie dye and you've got like a <laughs> Is little... that out there on the internet somewhere? Oh, it's know. out there. Oh boy. And um, so was that <laughs> a- Grateful Dead shirt. Uh... Oh, yep. I was like, oh, I want to tap into this side of Spencer. <laughs> so <laughs> that's half the reason why I started the podcast is because everybody's got these like layered stories, right? There, there's never like just kind of what you see is what you get. And I love that you're in your, I think, Grateful Dead t-shirt backpacking through Europe. Was that a, like, I got my Goldman offer. And part of that is I already know what I'm doing. So I'm going to go like, I think that, I think the, um, the aforementioned, uh, and regrettable tie dye, uh, shirt trip to Europe was after high school. Um, Oh, that was after going to college. And I, I did spend the summer backpacking through Europe with, with a guy named Jared Gruz, who's still a close friend of mine. Uh, and Jared went on to have an amazing career in tech also at, at Google, at Spotify, at, you know, he ran Huffington Post, he was an executive at AOL, he's, he's run tons of tech companies and has had an awesome career. Um, and we had a great time going through Europe oh. as uh, 17 I wanted my so. kids, to, my son did that in between high school and college. And I'm always like, okay, when is that fitting in? I love yeah. that you were able to fit I it then, in. I then, after after college, before I started at Goldman Sachs, so when I was 21, I did a similar trip through uh, Ireland with three other ah. friends. And that was also amazing. But by then yeah. I had I had hung up my Grateful Dead shirt and I was not <laughs> well, in tie-dye. I, like, I do like to see it because... Um, Clearly, you're very driven, and I don't know if you would call yourself Type A. I feel like that's like a little bit over, overdone. That that's, but I'm guessing that you probably sure, are to yeah, accomplish everything yeah. that you've accomplished. 
And I just like to see that there's a break because as now I'm asking questions as a mom where it's like this pressure cooker, but you also want freedom and you also want to like have some fun. You went right into Goldman and that's what hundred hour work weeks, crazy town. Yes. Um, yeah. I did two years of investment banking straight out of college, which is a great experience. And uh, you know, listeners at that stage of your career, if you can, if you can find yourself in that position, I highly recommend it. Or, or if your kids can, um, you learn a lot at a very young age and it's a great foundation as is consulting straight out of college also, which is a similar type program, two or three years straight out of college. Um, what's so great about that is first is several things. Firstly, you just learn a lot about finance and capital markets and how companies work, things that I didn't learn in college at all. But secondly, you find yourself in rooms that you might have that you that no 21 year old should ever find themselves in you know sitting in the back of a boardroom where a fortune 500 company is trying to decide whether to sell a division um sitting in the room with a ceo just learning because you're not really meant to talk in those settings at that age uh for good reason just learning as that ceo is deciding whether to make a transformative acquisition or whether to take their company public um and by the way those are all things that it's very difficult to do remotely. So if you are working remotely in today's day and age, it's harder to be a sponge and learn those types of things, which I benefited from at an early age. But the other thing that I got from that experience at Goldman Sachs in my early 20s was the network. And mm -hmm, to this totally. day, many of my closest friends are people that were classmates or colleagues of mine at Goldman Sachs, either my era or a year or two above, who all went on to do amazing, interesting things. And uh, I wouldn't trade that for anything. Yeah, that makes sense. And so was there a part of you that was like, that is the path? And I know usually it's typically, and then I go back and get my MBA and, you know, what was, what were you thinking at that time as far as the next step? Because TPG also an incredible company, but, you know, different route. So I graduated in 1997 and to take listeners back in 1997, the internet was really just starting. And yeah. there were companies like Yahoo and Alta Vista and Excite and Lycos and companies that nobody remembers, Ariba, Akamai, uh, eBay, that were the leaders back then. And it changed within just a couple of years after I graduated. But when I graduated in 1997, or more importantly, when I was going through recruiting in 1995 and 1996, trying to figure out what to do after college, very, very few people were going into tech back then. Um, in fact, the the... The few people that did were basically the people that couldn't get jobs in consulting and investment banking. Oh, yeah. And a lot of those people went on to have amazing careers because they were early and they ended up, yeah. you know, early at, at those amazing tech companies and then even earlier at the next generation of great tech companies like Google and others. Um, but I guess I was still a little bit risk averse at the time. I didn't, I, I wanted to take the safer route, go to Wall Street, work at an established firm, get more foundational learning. Um, and it was partly informed by the fact that Harvard is a liberal arts college that doesn't really train you to do much of anything specific after it. And that's sorted by design. These liberal arts schools, and I know you have a, a child at a liberal arts school, like they teach you how to learn and how to think and how to problem solve and how to write and how to communicate. But you don't really have any specific knowledge or skills. It's the opposite of a trade school. And so I thought it would be valuable to go and get a business education working on Wall Street, which it surely was. And that's another reason I was attracted to that start of my career. Yeah, that makes sense. Strangely, um, my first job out of college and I graduated in 94 was as a recruiter in San Francisco. Oh, so all of those, I've been recruiting for 30 years. Um, so happy anniversary to both of us. <laughs> <laughs> I 
um, was recruiting for those companies in, I was in the Bay area and it was like a joke because mm. you're right. Like we didn't, we didn't have a LinkedIn, we didn't have anything. And it was just build relationships with these companies. And I'm trying to think of who these founders were. And I think it was not the founders, the, the employees. I think you're right. Like I was conditioned also that you go, you know, mm-hmm. consulting, you go banking. <laughs> you're right. Yeah. It's like the people that couldn't get those jobs. Yeah, but I mean, credit to them who took the risk. I mean, the, the equivalent today might be people that are dropping out of college to go to AI startups or something, which, yeah. um, uh, you know, maybe I, I guess the people two years ago that dropped out of college to go to crypto and blockchain and Web3 startups probably regret it. Yeah. Um, so it's I mean, it's a it's a risk. So tell me about like leaving that whole world of stability. What yeah. gave you the confidence to go out on your own? And who'd you do it with and all that? Well, so in 1999, I was at, I left Goldman Sachs. I was at TPG, which is a private equity firm uh, and a, a blue chip private equity firm, sort of a very safe place to be. Although it was, it was pretty small back then. It was only about 20, uh, uh, 20 investors and we were only managing a couple billion dollars today. TPG is probably a thousand employees and they manage over a hundred billion dollars. So it's grown a lot in the 20 something years since then. But at TPG, we incubated a startup idea. And TPG's first couple investments were in the airline industry. They bought Continental Airlines out of bankruptcy. They bought America West Airlines out of bankruptcy. They sold part of the Continental State to Northwest. So they controlled Northwest Airlines uh, or parts of it. And so the idea that we had at TPG was to create an airline consortium company that would be a discount travel website. So we went to six airlines, American United, Continental, Northwest Airlines, US Air, and America West, which by the way, today there are only two or three of those left. But um, back then that was most of the airline industry. And we said, hey, uh, let's all get together and create this company. So I, this was not my idea. I was staffed on this as a 23 year old. And I spent six months creating the business plan, creating the founding contracts for the company, naming the company, and then the the partner and I that were staffed on this deal, we decided to leave TPG to go run it and to create it, to turn it into something. Um, so at the time, I, you know, I mean, it was risky to be sure, but it wasn't the same amount of risk as if I had decided to be two kids in a garage yeah. thinking of a startup idea. I mean, if right. it failed, I could probably go back to TPG. If, if all went wrong, I could probably, probably go back to Goldman Sachs. So I don't want to overstate the level of risk, but it's, it's actually a good, a good lesson for, for listeners that I think people generally tend to overstate or over worry about business risks that they're taking. Like most of the time people take a business risk of doing a startup, they probably have enough of a safety net either savings or family or the ability to go get another job that it's not, this isn't like a risk, like soldiers in Ukraine are taking risk when they, you know, charge into a trench. That's a risk. Like this is not really that risky. And so uh, people should take more of them. It'll probably be okay. Uh, I'm going to make my kids listen to this podcast. I tell them to listen. (laughs) They don't listen, but there's there's so many nuggets you're giving. This is, (laughs) it's super helpful. So tell me about the, that, um, the tra- trajectory of Hotwire and what led you ultimately to Zillow. Yeah, the trajectory was was uh, was interesting. It was a roller coaster. So ninety nine to oh one was great. We grew quickly. We were a top travel site. We had great products and great discounts and great savings. And customers loved us. And then September eleventh two thousand one happened, and you know nine eleven was obviously a tragedy for the world, a tragedy for the country. Um, thousands of Americans died. Uh, it was also a tragedy for our company. So firstly, we had tens of thousands of travelers that were stranded all around the the world because airlines were grounded for, I think it was 12 days or so. 
Uh, secondly, people were reluctant and scared to travel for safety reasons. And uh, thirdly, hot, at Hotwire, we sold tickets to the hijackers, not the September 11th flights, but the September 10th flight from Bangor, Maine to Boston Logan Airport put the Boston Logan cell of, of hijackers in position. So we I only started sharing that detail a year or two ago. It wasn't something that we even told the company. It was something that only two or three of us on the executive team knew because the FBI called us that afternoon and wanted to know what we knew about these these um, you know these deceased terrorists that had apparently used our company to buy airline tickets. Um, so we never let that be known broadly, but for the executive team, it added this palpable sense of guilt and connection to this tragedy. Um, so it was hard times for the next six months or so. We did a down round, which means we raised venture capital at a lower price than the prior round, which is uh, a big deal and, and can be a big problem, became a big problem for us because it ends up wiping out a lot of the, the common equity. So a lot of the, the shareholder value of the company gets eroded by those down rounds. Uh, we did layoffs. We went from about 200 employees to about 125 or so. Um, and it was very hard. And fortunately, by two years later, through a heck of a lot of hard work and grit and reconnecting to the mission and, uh, you know, just like blood, sweat and tears, we got back onto a path of profitability and had hired Goldman Sachs. To take us public, and by the way, my co-founder, this uh, from TPG and then Hotwire, he also had worked at Goldman Sachs uh, with me, and so it was very, uh, very sweet that we hired Goldman. We were excited to work with our old colleagues to take us public, and then Expedia called and made us an offer we couldn't refuse. And so they bought Expedia bought the company for six hundred eighty-five million dollars in two thousand three, which at the time was the largest ever all-cash purchase of an internet company. Um, but remember that down round I mentioned, <laughs> the impact of the down round is that um, unfortunately, most of the common equity was wiped out. So the investors did very well, but there wasn't as much um, money to go around as one might expect. So important lesson learned about the importance of structuring a company, all these you know, founders that are listing, all those details that your lawyers try to explain to you around a ratchet and a liquidation preference and a um, you know, pro rata and pari passu and all these details that I certainly didn't understand when I, at my first company, they matter. They're really important. <laughs> Make sure you understand them or somebody you trust around you understands them. Um, nonetheless, it was a great exit. And at age 27, I was very happy to have sold my company and my girlfriend, fiance, wife had moved up to Seattle to go to medical school by that point. And how I was in San Francisco. And so I had been commuting from San Francisco to Seattle for a couple of years and fortunately, our new parent company, Expedia, was based in Seattle. So I left Hotwire the week that the deal closed, moved up to Seattle to work at our new parent company, Expedia, and I ran the hotel business at Expedia Group, which by then was Expedia, Hotwire, uh, I think Hotels.com, and then shortly after Travelocity, Orbitz, and a couple other brands. And I did that for about a year uh, until I got the startup itch again and decided to leave Expedia to co-found Zilla. And you tell me about your co-founders, and I mean... Um... I love Zillow and I've done a lot of work with Zillow. I love Annie. Annie Rin's a friend of mine. Yes, and, she's uh, the best. You know, the group that really helped build it, people stayed for so long. I just, it, it's notable because I've worked with thousands of companies over the 30 years that you scaled this business and you maintained such a strong culture. We started to talk about it in the early part of the podcast. And just, I loved how the values were up written on the mm. wall. Like it just felt so solid. 
How yeah. did you guys, was that a, like, we sit down, we decide all that and then we launch or like, tell me about the evolution of sure. the culture. So when we started the company, um, uh, I was the CMO at the very beginning and then the CFO and the COO. So yeah, I wasn't the original CEO. I started it with Rich Barton, who was the original CEO and Lloyd Frank. Rich and Lloyd were, uh, well, Rich was the founder of Expedia inside of Microsoft. Lloyd was also uh, very early at Expedia within Microsoft. So um, the three of us and then uh, Kristen Acker, who's still there, still runs product. She was early at, at Microsoft and Expedia and David Bytel, who's still there as CTO. Um, we sat in a room for months, for three or more months, trying to figure out what to do. We knew we wanted to start a company. We knew we wanted to do it together. We knew we were all done with the Expedia chapter of our lives. And in my case, the Hotwire and Expedia chapter of my life, but we weren't really sure what to do. And several of us were buying homes all at the same time in Seattle. And we started kind of as during breaks, when we were supposed to be brainstorming about startup ideas and thinking about what industries technology was going to disrupt, we started privately building mashups of Google Maps and MLS data and King County, which is the county in Seattle, as you know, King County website data to try to figure out the to, to be a more informed home buyer. And several of us were doing this all at the same time. And um, by the way, there was a second thing that we were doing, which was we were editing family photos because we'd all been working so hard for the prior 10 or 15 years from Microsoft, Expedia, Hotwire, et cetera, Goldman Sachs for me that we had all these hard drives with all these photos that we had taken on digital cameras. There were no smartphones, remember, at the time. Uh, so we had taken all these photos on digital cameras and we had all these, these photos. And this was the first time any of us had taken a break in our career. And so we were like editing all these photos. And so we hatched basically two, two business ideas at the time. One was something that basically was Dropbox. And again, Dropbox didn't exist. Cloud didn't exist. This is 2005 we're talking about. Um, literally the term, nobody had used the word cloud yet. And what we observed dealing with the photos was that it seemed to be like a big pain in the neck to try to move big files from one machine to another, from your old hard drive to your work one, your work one, your personal one. And so the idea was maybe we could somehow use the internet to move files back and forth or something. Um, and then the other idea was something in real estate shopping, because that seemed to be kind of broken also when we were all messing around and building, you know, hacking together things ourselves. And the reason that we decided the real estate idea instead of the uh, storage idea was we had this hypothesis that storage would eventually be erased to the bottom and that the internet giants would probably provide storage for free or or really cheaply to get people to use their ecosystem. Now, we never predicted it would be Amazon with AWS. We never, you know, Amazon was selling books and DVDs at the time. We never predicted that it would be Microsoft. They were selling operating system software and workplace productivity software. You know, we certainly never predicted it would be Google. That was a search engine back then. Um, Google Cloud didn't exist. Uh, we thought it would be Lycos and and eBay and Yahoo and PayPal and this this other prior generation of internet giants. But we were right that storage would basically become free. And uh, you know, credit to Dropbox and Box, both of whom managed to build a business with basically the business plan that we had. Um, but we just thought it would be really really hard, and so we chose Door B, which was online real estate. Well, door B turned out pretty great. <laughs> it did. No complaints. No complaints. With no respect complaints. to company culture, um, uh, you know, with respect to company culture, after about, uh, my memory is a little distant here, but I think maybe after about a year after founding the company, um, maybe two, Rich uh, stepped back from CEO to become chairman and I stepped in as CEO. And one of the first 
decisions that I made, I, I remember having this conversation with Rich. I said, you know, okay, I'm going to be CEO. One of the first things I want to do is I want to get rid of everyone's office because at the time, every single employee had an office because that was how Microsoft worked and that's how Expedia worked. And having open office space at the time in 2007 was, was actually kind of unique. And he's like, okay, oh, yeah. if, that's, if that's what you want to do, that's you know, you'll be CEO. It's up to you. And that started to set the tone for the culture. And Annie, as you mentioned, Annie Ryan was one of our first employees, our first hires. She was amazing and hired thousands of Zillow people and helped set the culture. And I worked so closely with her for more than a decade. And a ton of credit belongs to her and the recruiting team because that's the tip of the spear when you're building culture. Um, yeah. But anyway, um, uh, yeah, what we did well, what my my team did well with respect to culture was we baked it into the operations of the business. So lots of companies, including Hotwire, had core values and a mission statement and and kind of posters on the wall. But at Hotwire, we never did a terrific job of infusing it into the operations of the company. So what we did do well at Zillow was we brought it into the compensation system, into the employee review system, into the employee recognition system. So for example, when an employee would win an award every month, we'd have a superstar award. They wouldn't just get the award. The person that would announce them would describe how specifically, what did that employee do that connected to one of the six core values of the company with a specific story? We had every employee do a personality test, this thing called insights, which shows how they want to be communicated with uh, I want to be communicated with with red energy, which means that my catchphrase is be brief, be bright, be gone. That's how I want people to communicate with me. If I want them to be. That's, I think me. I'm red. I think I might be red uh, energy. <laughs> be bright with me, be gone with me. Uh, if you lead with yellow energy, you have a sunny, happy disposition and you want people to make a lot of small talk. And, oh my God, I'm writing be, all this down. And this be happy, amazing. happy. And uh, you know, if you have lead with blue energy, it's calm, cool, collected, analytical. A lot of people in data science or software engineers lead with blue energy. Um, and you know, green energy is slightly different. Everyone has a different rank order of these energies. And, uh, you know, for me, it's red and then blue and then green. And then at the very bottom, yellow, like uh, I don't have much use for small talk and, you know, happy, happy. Right. Um, and then people could think that you're mad at them if they're sensitive and be like, why didn't Spencer yes. say, how was your weekend? Yeah, exactly. But what we did, but then what we did well was after we did all this testing, we, uh, we did a lot of training about how, what, what, what the hell should we do with this? And what we should do with it is the manager has to change the way they communicate to adapt to the direct report. So for example, we do these these um, uh, these role plays where a manager would have to kill a project that a direct report had been working on for six months, the week before the project ships. So if, you know, your normal instinct is you would communicate the way you want to be, you know, the, so I'd leave with, so I'd leave with your energy, I would just walk up to the person and be like, okay, we decided to kill a project, sorry, like time to move on. If the, if the direct report leads with red energy, that's fine. But if they lead with blue energy and you go do that, that is so demotivating. So you have to change your style to adapt to their style. So we literally have these blocks at everyone's desk that showed the rank order of the four energies. I know this seems a little hokey, but, but it actually is pretty effective. And then on the corporate intranet and in Slack, it had the same thing. Next to everyone's face, it showed the priority of their energies. So if you have to go communicate to somebody um, to kill a project and they lead with blue energy, you have to show them data and explain, you know, here's why and here's the thinking and da, da, da. And then if yellow is next, then you got to build them back up and try to, you know, it's okay. Here's wow. Why. You know, this and is so fascinating. I never knew this. It's hard to do that, um, to change your communication style to adapt to others. So um, anyway, these are just like examples of, of things that I remember the first time 
somebody pitched me on this at Zillow and I was CEO. They're like, hey, we should we should do this insights thing. And I'm like, oh, how much will it cost? And it, the test was like a hundred something bucks an employee. And I'm like, and then we have to do training on it. And I'm like, that seems like a waste of time. That's my red. And then I really thought about it. And like, when we fully rolled that out, it was invaluable. And there were 25 other things like that, that I could, you know, I could get into if we had time that um, brought the culture alive and made it a really special place to work, made it that we won all sorts of awards and high oh, gla clearly, glass yeah. door ratings and et cetera, et cetera. And it's the thing I'm most proud of from my, um, you know, from my 20 or 15 to 20 years at Zillow, more proud of than the fact that we got public or got a big market cap or, or became the most visited real estate site. Like the company culture is what I'm most excited about and proud of. Yeah. And I also know that diversity and inclusion is something that matters to you. Um, and that was, you know, I think Zillow is one of the only companies I worked with that was in the, the first to have a dedicated diversity and inclusion leader. And I just like hats off to you because yeah. I know it's become like the thing, but, um, you guys were early. Well, we, we were, and I appreciate that. And I, I'll tell you exactly, I remember why we did it and when we became early. And um, uh, it was, we always did a lot of employee surveys about employee satisfaction, employee engagement, and and tried to figure out, you know, how what's the pulse of the company. And I don't remember why exactly, but for one reason or another, we decided to cut that data by race, gender, and, and other, um, you know, sexual orientation, other things. And it was stark. I was all of a sudden I was like, I thought the company was super fired up, but actually it looks like black women are not. They feel totally disengaged. And it looks like gay employees are also not engaged. And oh my gosh, it looks like everyone except the white men are, you know, pretty unhappy here. And uh and the data was very clear. And that was why we got serious about DEI. Not because it was in vogue or it was the right thing to do, which it is, but it was because it was just very clear that our employees were having very different experiences at the company. And that wasn't really clear at all until we started looking at the data that way. Yeah. Uh, and then we created affinity groups and then we got more serious about recruiting. And then we got serious about making sure that each team had diversity. Um, and, um, you know, I can give you a couple examples of where we had specifically better business outcomes from diversity which is, which is, and I will in a second, but um, that's one thing I think doesn't get spoken about enough. I, I feel like everyone kind of now has conviction on the importance of diversity in the workplace, but it's mostly coming from a, a moral ethical place. 100%. It, well, the, the statistics are strong about the actual ROI on the business. It's like 3.5% yes. higher profitability. I mean, it's like all sorts of crazy statistics. Totally. And, and I mean, uh, one really specific example goes back to the founding story. Um, when uh, when when I and David Vitale and Kristen Acker and the other co-founders were all in the room trying to figure out, OK, we chose plan B, let's build a real estate website. Then we're like, OK, well, what do we do? Um, you know, the, the first moment of inspiration was we were looking from the we were in a high rise uh, and I think sixth and pipe or sixth and pine um, on like the 40th or 50th floor in a conference room. We were looking out at Queen Anne, um, which, as you know, is a, you know, a suburban neighborhood kind of near downtown Seattle. And we we're looking at all the houses there. And we're, we said, you know, wouldn't it be amazing if you could have sort of a God's eye view and look into every single house and, and see the price on every single rooftop, almost like magic goggles that would show you everything about every one of those houses. That would be amazing. And so we started building that first version of the product and it was going to have Zestimates and tax assessment and beds, baths, square footage, et cetera. And, and all this amazing data on every home in the country. 
And one of those pieces of data was going to be the name of the owner who lives in that house, because that information is in the public record. It's in the county courthouse on the title and on the mortgage. And Kristen Acker, who was the only woman in the room, said, that is a terrible idea. If we do that, there's going to be some woman that you know moved from one side of the country to the other to get away from some bad guy. And he's going to go and look her up on Zillow and her life is going to be ruined and our company is going to be ruined. And the rest of us rich white men looked at each other like, oh, don't be ridiculous. Information wants to be free. This is on mission. This is us, you know, putting all this great data out there. Data needs to be democratized. And she's like, no. And she put her foot down. And thank God she did, because to this day, almost 20 years later, Zillow still does not have the names of owners on the website. She was absolutely right. That would have crossed a privacy line. hundred percent. Yeah. And it not only didn't occur to any of us initially, but we disagreed with her even after she brought it up. Right. It's And that's, that's like the diversity of like all the things, but it's like, this is diversity of thought, which is yes. like the ultimate, you know, goal. Totally, I mean, totally. obviously we've got the moral and ethical, but there's diversity of thought that has the best ROI for the business. Okay. Let's like fast forward. You okay. leave Seattle, you leave Zillow, you go back to your roots in LA. Yeah. Moved back and- to LA, started a new, started a bunch of new companies. So the last four years, I left Zillow four years ago. And I started. Or I have, for some reason, I had it in my head. It was like 2017. I guess it was like. Uh, I think. I know. I'm pretty sure it was four. Uh, I think it was four, four years, years ago. ago. Well, oh, you I, well, I moved back to life. LA 2017. I, I think I commuted for a couple of years. Still oh, you commuted Zillow. for a couple of years. Yeah, but okay. I, but I left Zillow four years ago, and I started 75 and Sunny Ventures, which is my family office venture firm, which invests in startups. And I'm an investor in about 100 startups, including some with you, like Arrived Homes, which is a great company. Yay, Arrived. Uh, and I know, <laughs> Yay, Ryan, arrived. I know Ryan, the CEO and founder, has been on this podcast. And, and so I recommend that episode to listeners. Um, and so I'm an investor in, in many, many dozens of startups through 75 and Sunny Ventures, but I also incubate startups. And so my startup studio has started six companies in the last couple of years. The biggest of them is a company called Picasso, which you mentioned at the top of the of the uh, episode. And Picasso takes a luxury second home and we fractionalize it. So we let people buy a portion of that second home. And then Picasso does the property management for it. We furnish it. We handle every detail. Um, Picasso has raised about $250 million of, of investment from venture capitalists, um, including several in, in your neck of the woods in Seattle, like Mavron and others. And we're in 40 markets in four countries. We've sold a billion of real estate. We just had our three-year anniversary. And I'm the leadership team there is mostly former Zillow folks, including my co-founder and CEO, who, by the way, is in YPO also, um, lives in the Bay Area. Um, Austin Allison is a great founder, and, and he was at Zillow with me for four years. Um, so the Picasso, I'm just curious, because this is me personally, who is obsessed with Picasso. What is the exact business model? Pretend somebody's sure. listening and they want to, they want a second home. Yeah. So when people want to, a lot of people want a second home. And frankly, everybody should want a second home because second homes change lives. Even in a lot of ways, they're even more important than your primary home, to be honest, because your primary home, you're doing dishes, you're dealing with laundry, you're driving the kids around in your in a second home, in a vacation home, that's when you can exhale. That's where you can be a better version of yourself. That's where you can be a better friend, husband, spouse, parent, sibling, et cetera. And um, second home ownership is very different than vacationing. It's, it allows you to join a community and form traditions. And I had that as a kid. I was fortunate enough to have, to have a second home. My parents um, had the second home and my family and I, my brother and I, and, and my siblings and I, it was really, really important to us. 
And my co-founder, the same thing, when he sold his first startup, when he sold the startup to Hotwire, uh, sorry, to Zillow, he was able to buy a second home. So the way Picasso works is uh, you go on the website, you look at listings, and Picasso has great homes there that we have either bought or put under contract. And at Picasso, you can buy an eighth or two eighths or three eighths or four eighths of that home. One eighth gives you one eighth of the home. And one eighth is about six weeks a year. And then you, um, every, all the expenses of the home are prorated based on how much of the home that you own. So it's a much, much better way to own a second home. We get a lot of people that want to own a second home and they have a million dollars to spend on a second home. And they start looking in Tahoe and Cabo and Aspen. Right, they're London. like, guess yeah. that's not happening. And they, yeah. yeah, and they say, well, that doesn't get me very much. And so instead they buy a quarter of a $4 million home yeah. from Picasso. And all of a sudden it's ski and ski out. Or it would also make sense, Spencer, to me, it makes sense because I've not done it because I have that guilt. I don't want to feel yes. like tethered yes. to yes. the second home. Like I, I love to go to Palm Springs, but I want to also go to Morocco yep. and yep. Yep. I want to travel the world. Huge problem. So, Huge problem. Me, the that, guilt that of your that. home sitting empty. There's the expense, but there's also the guilt of God, we really need to use it. Oh, but the kids have soccer practice again this weekend. We can't go. Oh, it's so right. annoying. Right. right. But um, if you right size your ownership and you own an eighth or a quarter or whatever is appropriate for your for your lifestyle, then you don't have that guilt. So uh, we have 1,500 owners. They love it. Um, you know, the product works really, really well. We've had 90,000 stay nights across all these homes. So, you know, we've been in business for a couple of years now. We've had resales where about more than 50 people have resold their uh, their Picassos um, and they've appreciated 11% on average. So that's really important. This is not oh, a timeshare where you that's get That's a stuck. huge detail. You know, yeah. you actually, there's liquidity in the, in the secondary marketplace, which is important. I'm super curious um, as an investor, what qualities you look for in founders, because you've been an operator. Yeah. You've also been an investor. So you've got an incredible purview to this. Uh, so there's no such thing as a good founder. There's only a good founder for a specific idea. So the founder product fit is really important. If you asked me to start a healthcare business, I would be terrible at it, even though I think I'm a pretty good founder. I love travel. I love real estate. You know, so I'm a good founder for those types of businesses. So, so what do I look for? I look for someone, a founder that is incredibly passionate about what they're doing. Um, quick story, my, my co-founder of Q, which is another of my startups, uh, Q is a streaming discovery service that lets you figure out what to watch based on what your friends are watching. Um, I said to him when, when he and I were, were first deciding whether to work together to start Q, I said, what would, what would happen if I told you, you couldn't do this? You couldn't work on this startup idea for whatever reason. And he just looked at me like I was crazy. He was like, he said, Spencer, I was put on earth to solve this problem. I wake up every morning trying to figure out how to help people what to figure out what to watch. I go to sleep every night trying to figure out what to watch. Like I would do this for free. This is what I am totally. going to do. And that's what I'm looking for for that type of that, that type of commitment and connection to solving that problem. Austin is like that with second home ownership at Picasso. Yeah. 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 I love that. And then I'm also curious about you serve on so many boards and you've been on so many boards. And I'm guessing you get asked all the time to take a board seat. What's the process that you go through to vet a good board and what makes a good board member? Um, a really important thing for me is who are the other board members? Cause I want to make sure that I learn from them. I've been on boards of companies that have failed, but I've become close friends and learned a lot from my fellow board members. And that's been worth it, even though the compensation maybe ended up being zero or the experience was stressful. So for me, it's mostly about putting myself in a situation where I can learn from those around me. And that's mostly about the, my fellow board members. Um, I also have to care about the business and think that it's at a stage and scale and in industry where I can be helpful. Um, what makes a good board member? Um, a good board member is somebody who uh, is uh, comes to board meetings prepared 
and uses the product and takes the time in between board meetings to to learn about the company and spend time with the management team um, enough so that they're not really learning anything new in a board meeting. There, there should never really be new information shared in a board meeting. A board meeting is for strategic discussion about open issues. Um, and board meetings where it's mostly about reporting and status updates, that's that's a miss. That, that should all be done ahead of time, off cycle, one-on-ones between the CEO and the board members, or sending board decks or board memos out ahead of time so that board meetings themselves can mostly be discussions. And so good board members are those that can contribute. A bad board member, um, and, and sadly, a lot of VCs fall into this category, um, sometimes hyper-connecting is, is, is frustrating. Like I've been in board meetings where a board member will be sitting there checking email the whole time, and then the topic will shift to, you know, cloud or something. And the board member picks up cloud. I invested in a cloud company five years ago. You should really meet Joe, the founder of blah. Like I'll put you guys together on a thread. And the CEO is like, oh, like they're just, I that just burned another hour of my time. Cause now I have to talk to some random person about nothing. Like, and, and I, I mean, I'm a hyper connector that can be valuable, but I am, I am too. it's like addicting. It's addicting is, when you're like that. Yeah. Yeah. But there's a tax on that on yes, both parties. 100%. And uh, I've seen a lot of board members think that that's adding value. Sometimes it's adding value, but sometimes it's very much attracting value. So beware of that. I could talk to you for like 10 hours. I'm like, I'm, I'm learning. This is like my board. I'm in a boardroom <laughs> right now. It's incredible. Okay. You have to answer me one question about like your time. How do you balance all of it? Are you like a multitasker? Do you believe in that? Or do you believe in like uh, hyper-focus? I do, I do multitask. I mean, I, I admit I, I I multitask. I do two things at once sometimes. Yeah, but, you're, you're running mean, and watching TV. <laughs> I mean- Playing um, chess. Would I, um, you know, I try to manage to inbox zero. I have different inboxes for every one of my companies. So I have a Q inbox, Picasso, 75 and Sunny, Dot LA, um, uh, you know, Hey Libby, wow. Recon Food. So I have different slacks and different email inboxes for each of those. That helps a lot to just keep my brain screwed on straight. Uh, I also don't keep a to-do list. Instead, I use my calendar as my to-do list. So for example, this afternoon, maybe if I have a half hour free slot, it'll say, um, you know, remember to read the the board deck for the whatever Picasso meeting next week. And that'll be today, 1130 to 12. So I schedule time with myself. If that comes along and I don't get to it, I then just move that the time to later today or to tomorrow. So, uh, and then I throw stuff on my calendar for further out. Uh, you know, I'll block an hour, three weeks from now to do my 2024 business planning or whatever. Yeah. Um, so I use my calendar as my to-do list and I've always done it that way. And that works really well for me. And what about all the nice to haves? Like the people that are asking you for favors, like, can you talk to my kids, my friend's son about his career path? And I you're like, yes I don't have time for that. Those. No, so I, do. I, do I do too say yes. And I'm I wonder, I do I'm think like, a lot about when I stop doing that. Cause like, I mean, I'm no uh, I'm no Satya Nadella. I'm no Elon Musk. But like, no, but I, you're, I'm no you, and I feel struggled by it. I'm like, but I've got to figure those people don't take those meetings. They just say no, or they just don't reply to those emails. I keep I, thinking other people say no, but someone yeah. told me to just put them at like every Thursday from two to four, or you're <laughs> like nice. Give yeah. Back yeah. That's, that's interesting. I mean, I, I, I do book 15 minute meetings. I also, I use a company called intro. I, I am bookable on intro.co. So you can go to intro.co slash Spencer Raskoff. And you can book time with me. Now you have to pay money, a lot of money. I charge, I think, 750 bucks for 15 minutes. I give it to charity, uh, to a homeless charity here in LA. But I refer a lot of a lot of those pings to to you know book me through intro. And my assistant has a standard template email. I'll forward to her, I'll say intro, and she knows to how to how to handle that. Um wow. And, that's and then, super you know, awesome. hey Libby also, I started a company to help solve this problem. So so if you go to heylibby.ai, 
you can create an AI assistant for yourself. And, and so like I go to heylibby.ai and I created my own Libby that says, you know, I'm a startup investor. I invest in these types of companies, not those. I invest in this stage, not that. I, I help with this. I don't help with that. And then I take that URL, heylibby.ai slash Spencer Raskoff, and Libby is like LinkedIn bio. I post that as my LinkedIn bio on my LinkedIn, on my Twitter, on my Instagram, on my TikTok. And so now people that find me on social media, they see on my profile, chat with me and they tap that Libby button and now they're chatting with my AI and they'll say, Hey, I'm a startup. I really want to talk to you, Spencer. And I'll say, great. Tell me about your company. It does this. Oh, that's cool. You know, I'm Spencer's AI assistant, you know, tell me more. Da, da, da. And it'll discuss with them 20, 30, 40, 50 conversations back and forth and um, kind of pre-qualify that inbound and then ultimately drive them to book time with me through intro. But then I get a summary of that. It, it vets it. It qualifies it for me. And heylibby.ai is for, for any small business owner, whether you're a journalist that gets DM'd through Twitter, people that want to talk to you, or you're an interior designer that puts or photos. Or you're a recruiter with people who are trying to make a career switch. There you go. There you go. Or you're an interior designer and you put photos on Instagram yes. and you get DMs on Instagram of, hey, will you do my, you know, do my living room? So anyway, that's, I started a company to improve time management for small businesses through AI. So that's what Hey Libby is all about. I'm all about it. And it looks like right now it's free. Uh, it is free. So there are a couple power user features behind a referral wall. So you can't have access to them until you refer a couple people. Um, but eventually it'll be, there'll be a paid tier with some power user features that are behind a paywall. I'm definitely going to try it. I'm so excited. Okay. My Thank final you. question for you, so you can get to your phone call and your yeah. crazy day and your run and all the go play some <laughs> chess and be a great dad um, is what fuels you. I, at this stage of my career, I'm a coach and I love helping other younger versions of me succeed and reach their full potential. So I'm, I'm done playing, uh, you know, Pat Riley played basketball and he was pretty good and playing every day is exhausting and you're prone to injuries and being a founder CEO is just all consuming. And then Pat Riley went on to have an amazing career as a coach. And that's what I'm trying to do right now, but, but I'm coaching multiple teams on different courts. Some of them are playing different sports. They're not all playing the same sport, uh, but I'm, I'm trying to be a, a coach. Thank you for listening to the What Fuels You podcast. If you'd like to check out past episodes to hear from more business leaders, go to fueltalent.com backslash podcast. And if you have a minute, please leave a review and rating on your favorite podcast app or share this episode with a friend or colleague. Please share any feedback or interview suggestions for other guests by sending a message to podcast at fueltalent.com. I'm Shauna Swirland, and thanks again for listening.